0: I took over for a teacher at the end of the school year for uh, someone who played that song at the end of each day, the Pink Panther song. And uh, during that time, students were expected to clean up, clean up their desks, get their mail, and uh, pick up the classroom. And there were always a few who had perfect desks anyway. Uh, but they would they would wipe off their desks. They would get it totally clean. They would get it on their hands and knees, and they would pick up trash around the entire classroom. Now, the the uh, couple who did the most or the best work, uh, the best cleaning up, would get a Jolly Rancher. Um, but they picked up stuff that even for a Jolly Rancher, ah. <sighs> like please don't touch that i'll i'll get that later right but but they were leaders right they were the ones who did not leave the trash or make the mess but they took responsibility for it for maintaining a clean classroom and they were incredible examples of leadership even though the trash was not their fault as we go through a couple of chapters today in uh, the book of 1 Samuel. It's going to highlight a couple ends of the spectrum in terms of leadership and in terms of responsibility. And we'll find that good and godly leaders take responsibility even, that's our asterisk, even for things that aren't necessarily their fault. So we're going to dive in because we've got a couple chapters and we want to make sure that... uh, that we have you out before 3 p.m. Just kidding. Uh, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then... What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Now, to recap just a little bit, this David that we are talking about is going to be the future king of Israel. He's not there yet. Saul is king at this time. And Saul is very threatened by this particular young man, David, because everything that David does is pretty successful. And Saul can't handle that because he's very insecure and probably demon affected, right? So so he's got some issues, and where we last left off is Saul's son, Jonathan, who was good friends with David, who saw God working through David and wanted to be a part of that. So much so, um, he loved David so much that he was essentially willing to give up his his place on the throne because he believed God more than human structures right And so he wanted to align himself with David and so he tried the diplomatic approach with his father to keep his father from killing David which he seemed very bent on Um, and that didn't quite work and uh, eventually Jonathan said to David it's not safe you got to go so David did Right? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. He split from that area. And this is where he ends up with the priests at uh, a location called Nob. Right? And I think one of the first things that we can notice, at least early in his life, is that David turns to those who follow God in his times of need. Right? He goes to Jonathan, a godly man who wants to align himself with God's purposes. Um, the priests, right? He's going to people who recognize the reign and authority of God himself. And even though David is the one seeking help, Ahimelech comes to him trembling in fear. Uh, the priest's question tells us that this was not a common occurrence for David to be alone. Usually he'd have some, some soldiers with him. Uh, so something something must be up. But we don't know what he expected, um but we know that uh that David was in need and he was hurriedly escaping from that situation and pretty desperate. Um probably not the typical look of one of the king's you know premier soldiers, the mighty war hero, hero David. And then David does something kind of interesting. He lies he lies uh I don't want to spend a ton of time on this um but it's one of those instances in scripture where something is described and there's no moral comment about it right so David makes up the story leading Ahimelech to believe that he is on King Saul's mission a secret mission you know at such a such a place (laughs) I, I love how they put that in there right um It's that secret, nobody's going to know, even David, really. Now, I don't know why David felt like that was the best course of action. Like, maybe he didn't trust Ahimelech to the full extent, maybe, or maybe he was really trying to protect Ahimelech, uh, give him plausible deniability for if Saul ever questioned him. Whatever it was, he chose to lie. And again, this is one of those times in the Bible where there's there's a description and it doesn't say, and that was bad. But here's what we know about God and his character. He doesn't lie. God is truth. And if our goal is to be more like Christ and to bring others along with us in that process, We are supposed to emulate Christ and his character, and he doesn't lie. So again, while there may be some sins with more consequence than lying um, or deception, I believe that we need to pursue truth, because that's God's character. Um, The lack of of comment on this doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for this later. And we'll find out as the story unfolds some of the consequences of this interaction. Part of David's wilderness experience as he's fleeing is hopefully learning some of these lessons. And I hope that we can learn from uh, these leaders that we read about, good and bad, as we go through this. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread for which their... For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, the holy bread was apparently only for the priests. Um, But the, the spirit of the law, it seems, permitted this kind of generosity when someone was in need And Jesus himself looked back on this story as an example of compassion and following the spirit of the law, the intent of the law, rather than than the actual um, letter. Although it is a little bit ironic how um, David David says, well, yes, we're pure, we're uh, spiritually clean, um, because we've been kept from women, um, while at the same time telling a lie. Again, there are some things that don't quite mix, and I'm glad that's not a, a question that I get at the France Bakery outlet when I go to find bread there. But um, now a certain man, kind of a non sequitur here, it seems... Uh, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Like that came out of nowhere. But just like in a movie, uh, a little bit of foreshadowing is uh, not so subtle here. And we'll find out that this is a really important detail for later in the story. Uh, A couple things about this uh, man in particular, he was an Edomite, uh, not an Israelite. So Jacob, who was eventually renamed Israel, had a brother Esau, and his descendants were Edomites. Now, while Jacob and Esau patched up their uh, tumultuous sibling relationship, it seems that their descendants didn't necessarily, and the Edomites were not kind uh, to the Israelites as they were coming out out of the promised land, or coming out of Egypt into the promised land. Again, we don't know a whole lot about this, this man Doeg, how he ended up as a servant of Saul um, or a man of pretty decent position in, in charge of his herdsmen. Um, and it's also unknown what he was doing at, at this uh, city of priests in Nob. Um, but what's more important is that he was he- there rather than why he was here. David continues his conversation with Ahimelech. He says, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Please, is implied. Uh, Foreshadowing, um, the taking of the only weapon available to the priests um, is is kind of an interesting twist in that. But also, this idea of providing assistance to David. Um, This priestly connection between David and the priests, um, where David knows that he's going to be king, that God had chosen him. Uh, to be king, but all of these other little elements are starting to add up, where um, again this this priestly connection um, and this relationship there continues to develop and um, and and others are recognizing it to an extent. Saul probably recognizes it, and that 's why he feels so threatened by David, so David ends up with food. He ends up with a weapon, um, and an an interesting weapon. If anyone should have that sword, it probably should be David, since he was the one who killed uh, the, the giant Goliath earlier. But here's what's really interesting. So now he grabs this unique sword of Goliath's, and he rose and he fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Goliath was from Gath, and the servants of Achish said to him, "Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands so again, it 's fascinating that he went to Gath um, with probably the most recognizable sword uh, from that from that giant in Gath, Goliath. Um, on the other hand it might very well be the last place that Saul would want to pursue him in the midst of Israel's enemies. Uh, Interestingly, the servants assume that David is king, or at least some kind of tribal ruler. Uh, King is as king does. Uh, he He is acting as a leader, typically, and Saul, not so much, or at least not a good one. The servants recognized David, again, maybe by the sword, maybe by the music video uh, from that top 40 hit that they had going on over in Israel. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? I love his response. Uh, King Akish Ach- is like comedic relief in here. But we can add actor to the things that David does well as well. Uh, in their hands, that phrase seems to indicate that he was probably escorted to the king, so not necessarily just free to roam about. And so his quick thinking uh, leads him to the decision to pretend to be crazy, and um, and it works. Which again is sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the wrong lesson that we need to pull from scripture. Again. This is another form of deception, right? It's leading someone to believe something false about you, at least in this case. And again, when we when we see David practicing some of these things, I'm not sure that it's a very positive thing. And maybe he his practice early on in his life in being deceitful uh, makes it easier for him to slide into that later. In life, um, but yeah, again, I love Akish's uh, response. And I'm curious how many madmen he already had, or maybe he was just talking about his family. Uh, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David essentially becomes the de facto leader of those who need leadership and help. I think those are really humble beginnings. This is a humble new beginning for David in his leadership. It wasn't an appointment, right? He'd had those, Um, but this was... This was organic, character-based leadership. People recognized David as someone that they could follow, who could help them, someone that they could trust. A news travels, and his, his family even goes to him. And again, it's not necessarily a, a move up, right? They're, they're moving from probably their family house to a cave. But on the other hand... Uh, they probably have some crosshairs on their back. Saul knows who David's family is, and they probably do not feel particularly safe with Saul out there uh, looking to kill David and who knows what else. Well, we'll find out the who knows what else a little bit later in this story. As we continue on, We read that David went from there to Mizpah Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now, David does move his family. Again, David is trusting God, but as indicated here, he doesn't know exactly what the next step is going to be, where God would have him go or be. And so he wants to take care of his family, so he moves mom and dad to another tribe, another area, another nation. And um, it's not totally out of the blue. Uh, In fact, David was a descendant of a Moabite. His great-grandmother was Ruth, like that Ruth of the Bible book Um, she was a Moab she was from Moab and uh, so this is this is going back to some family to be able to care for his parents and he seems to be able to uh, continue to receive godly counsel Uh, there's a prophet that kind of shows up again sort of shows up out of nowhere we read about him a couple uh, a couple other times in scripture but we don't know a whole lot about him But again, David is is getting direction and guidance from God, and he's following it. It's really, really important for godly leadership, is to receive direction and to seek direction and follow it. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the Tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, "'Here now, people of Benjamin, "'will the son of Jesse give every one of you "'fields and vineyards? "'Will he make you all commanders of thousands "'and commanders of hundreds "'that all of you have conspired against me?' Hmm. "'Fun person to be around, right? "'Insecure guy holding a spear.' Uh, wonder how nervous his servants were feeling at that point in time. I think the fact that he is also, he, he talks to the people of Benjamin, right? It was a small tribe of Israel um, where Saul was from, but it maybe seems to indicate his narrow realm of influence, that those might be about the only people that were still with Saul, like his family, essentially, um, and people like uh, Doeg, the Edomite, which we'll get into in just a second. It's also interesting that Saul, at least in, in a couple of these passages, doesn't call David, David. He calls him the son of Jesse, like, I don't know, it seems seems almost like a way to swear at him without swearing, right? Son of Jesse, Right. Because he i don 't know if he just can 't bring himself to uh, to say uh, the name, uh, maybe because he doesn 't respect him much. Saul appeals to his tribe, right the people of Benjamin, um, and to their like basest desires, right money and status now he doesn 't necessarily promise these things to his servants, but he's assuming that they've all conspired against them, right? Everyone is against Saul, so he thinks. And and he's asking, you know, why? Why have you conspired against me? Did David promise you all of these things? Because he can't deliver that, but the, the implication is, well, I can, right? I can give you things that you want, like money from taxes, Right? Um, but as we look at characteristics of godly leadership, if you have to bribe people to stay with you, you might not be a godly leader. Saul continues on this rant. He says, no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. All right, so Saul is very convinced that David is out to kill him. He is not, as a matter of fact, but this is what Saul believes. And he doesn't trust anyone else. He believes they're all in it together. They're all conspiring. This is, this is paranoia at its worst. But then somebody pops back into this story. He said, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Hmm. Doeg is apparently fairly cognizant of an opportunity to move up the ranks and to be of help now. Again, especially with that implication, maybe that Saul will reward those who are with him. Uh, he also doesn't say David. He echoes Saul's verbiage of the son of Jesse, and he spills the beans about what happened with that interaction between David and the priest. So, then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all. All of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub." And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? It's interesting that he brings the priest and everyone with him, the whole group. And it's interesting, unless we maybe surmise that Saul already had something in mind that he was going to do. His conversation begins with an accusatory question. He doesn't go for the the soft, open-ended questions. It's, why have you conspired against me? Well, it doesn't leave a lot of room for discussion at that point. Although, to be fair, the the truth might not have helped much either, right? What happened when you saw David? Uh, Well, he came on a secret mission for you. Well, I didn't send him on a mission. And the paranoia would probably set in there as well. But Saul assumes, again, that, that Ahimelech is in on this, right? That Ahimelech and the priests are conspiring against him, to give David help so that David can assassinate him. Um, This is all going on in his mind. But Ahimelech Ahimelech knows nothing of this. He says, Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to a servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Ahimelech does, it seems, a fantastic job of defending David and his honor. I mean, his resume is pretty great, right? He's faithful. He's actually Saul's son-in-law. Uh, he's his son-in-law, uh, captain of the guard. He's honored in Saul's house. Like, David is the man, which again is why Saul hates him. But, but as well, Ahimelech has inquired of the Lord on behalf of David before. right? So he's bringing in that, that sp- spiritual relationship as well. Right, David is seeking God, and Ahimelech has helped him. Why would he not help him again? It would make sense from the priest's standpoint, at least. And he says, "I don't. Uh, you're talking about a conspiracy. I don't know anything about that," which was probably true. But Saul doesn't buy it. His immediate reaction is, "Everyone dies." The king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. God asks us to obey authorities in our lives, even ungodly authorities. Unless what is being asked is ungodly in and of itself, and so you have these these guardsmen, right? People that were probably under David had served with him or under him, and they refuse. They refuse to do this. Maybe it's because they know David's character. Maybe it's because they simply refuse to go against God. Right, to raise their hand against the priests of God. But there's always someone with a certain moral flexibility who will do what no one else will. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. There are a number of moments in scripture where it's pretty natural to ask, Why? Just, just why? Right? When your decisions also affect others when taking a moral stand it is especially challenging, and I, I can't, I can't imagine Ahimelech anticipating that kind of reaction. I mean, maybe he knew Saul better, but but what an what an incredible reaction to what Ahimelech was saying. It seems like Saul's act and his response is egregious sin and demonic. And I would agree with that. But I also want to point something out that this is part of a bigger picture There's, this is a bit of a bookend to a prophecy that shows up in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. And there's a lot of verses in that prophecy, but I want to highlight, I want to highlight one in particular. This prophecy was given in response to uh, Eli, who was the priest, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were horrible. Um, They basically took everything that that uh, that God wanted for them and abused it and twisted it and basically did everything wrong. And God had had enough, and He said, "You're all going to die." And what what shows up in verse 33 of chapter two it says, "The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar." shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. This is what we have. All right, one person escapes. Abiathar. He alone escapes out of all of this. The, this part of the prophecy is fulfilled. So as... Horrible as this encounter and this incident is, it's not entirely out of the blue. And I want to be very careful as we talk about things like this because I don't want us to assume that God doesn't care about people when tragedies happen or that the victims of tragedies deserved it. but I think we would also do well to understand that there is a bigger picture and we don't understand everything. And I think we would also do well to remember that our actions affect others. I mean, this is an, this is an incredibly sobering thought to think that Eli and Hofni and Phineas, in many ways were the cause of what happened here. I think, I think we can take this to heart in, in the general sense that our, that our actions do affect others. And it's really easy to look at people like Hofni and Phineas and say, well, I'm not that bad. Or I don't think I have a prophecy in the history of my family, you know, where we're all doomed. But, but we can't escape the fact that our sins can and do affect other people, even for generations. And so this prophecy is fulfilled, and one person escapes. And where does a person go who has nowhere to go? To David, uh, to tell him the news. And as we end this chapter, David says to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. What a fascinating end to this whole incident. Right, it's not David's fault It's not David's fault that this massacre occurred. It's Saul's and Doeg's. But David is the one who takes responsibility. As good and godly leaders should. He was involved. He also probably didn't do everything right, but he feels this need to protect the last remaining priest. And I find it so interesting from Abiathar's perspective, he comes and David takes responsibility, right? Like the massacre of your family, that's on me. Stay with me. Wait, what? And yet, and yet those that died weren't with David. Right? It seems like David would defend to the death those who were with him. And even though being with David paints kind of a large target on Abiathar's back, he kind of already had one. And wouldn't it be better to be with someone that will fight for you rather than being alone or trying to be with someone like Saul who would violate every sense of decency? It was taking us two chapters to get Back to kind of this main point that I want to hit on, but fault versus responsibility. The, the incident at Nob is central in this, in this passage and in this story, right? It is Saul's fault, Doeg's fault, Hofni's fault, Phineas' fault, Eli's fault, and David is the only one who takes responsibility, And what I want you to hear from this is the gospel. Sin is not Jesus' fault. But he took responsibility for it. Sin is not Jesus' fault, but he took responsibility for it and made a way for us to be reconciled With God because of our broken relationship with Him due to our sin. He was the only one who could. He was the only one who could provide a solution. But He saw the problem, and rather than saying, Not my circus, not my monkeys, He said, I will make a way. And He said, With me, you shall be in safekeeping. That's the message of the gospel. And I think that we can emulate that in some of the different spheres of our lives. You know, I talked earlier about some of the kids in the classroom, like picking up after others. That's just It's such a simple example, but how many of us would be like, well, I didn't make that mess. And how many of us do that in other areas of our life? Maybe even in our family. Well, it's not my conflict. I'm staying out of it. Well, Maybe, maybe even if that conflict isn't our fault, we can take some responsibility for that and be a peacemaker. Right? Maybe at school, again, we use the example of picking up after others. I'm not saying we have to always do other people's jobs, but what are some ways in school, students? Right? What are some ways in school where you can take responsibility for stuff that isn't your fault, Someone's being mean to somebody else. It's not your fault, but how can you take responsibility and be a part of a solution? Maybe it's at our jobs. Again, I don't think we have to do other people's jobs for them. But if something's broken, how can you be a part of fixing it? Or take our community or our nation. I mean, it's election time coming up soon. right? And what we're going to hear over and over again are people blaming everybody else for all of the problems? So, how is it that we can be a part of the solution, even if it's not our fault? It's not your fault that we have a drug crisis. It's not your fault that we have a homeless crisis. But what can we do to to be involved in the solution? You're going to see this all the time in in church. We're this place is filled with people who take responsibility for things that aren't their fault right even just this morning Katie was cleaning up a mess that I assuredly I had made at some point um, in the past and she was like well it's my job I'm like well it's not really but thank you for demonstrating the point of the sermon right people all around us at this church and, and elsewhere take responsibility it's not uncommon for me to uh, to come before church and to look out and see Lynn Schick picking up trash around the school because it needs to be done. I know for sure that Lynn Schick did not make the mess. 100% positive. right? But it's just an example of, of seeing a need and responding to it. As a people, that's what we need to be, to to emulate that example of Christ.